New Thinking Aloud, conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with parapsychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today, we'll be looking at the life and work of Neville Goddard and his discovery of the God within. My guest is Mitch Horowitz, who is the editor of The Ideal Realized Practical Instructions from Neville Goddard. He's also author of Magician of the Beautiful, an introduction to Neville Goddard. Mitch has written over a dozen books, including The Seeker's Guide to the Secret Teachings of All Ages, The Awakened Mind, How Thoughts Become Reality, and Occult America, The Secret History of How Mysticism Shaped Our Nation. Mitch is based in New York City. And now, I'll switch over to the internet interview. Welcome, Mitch. It's a pleasure to be with you once again. Great to be here. Thank you, Jeff. We're going to be talking about Neville Goddard. And uh, as I read your book on Neville, uh, you described the, your encounter with, uh, I guess it was one of his last books called Resurrection and how reading that book changed your life. It was a very profound experience for you. Let's start there. How, how did it affect you? Yeah, that's very true. Uh, Neville's book, Resurrection, has been one of the greatest influences uh, on my life. And Neville, as a mystic, as a teacher, as a thinker, in many regards, put me on the path that I'm on today. It was years ago, I think it was in 2003, I was interviewing uh, a Major League Baseball pitcher who many of your listeners will remember, Barry Zito, who in many ways was the hero of the 2012 World Series, Barry played for the Oakland A's and then later the San Francisco Giants. And he was widely known for using metaphysical methods as part of his training regimen. And I was interviewing him for Science of Mind magazine. And as we were talking in the late summer of 2003, Barry said to me, wow, you must really be into Neville. Neville Goddard writes under his first name. I had never heard the name before. And he was incredulous. And immediately after the conversation, I went out and got a copy of what was Neville's last book, Resurrection, which was published in 1966. Uh, Neville died about six years later. And I was absolutely blown away. I was absolutely blown away. Neville promulgated one basic radical teaching, which is that your imagination is God the creator, and that any time you encounter references to Christ or God, or the creator in scripture, you are encountering a symbolic reference to your own imagination. And Neville taught this in the most literal sense and taught that everything that you experience is your own emotionalized thought pattern projected out into the world. Everything, everything that you, the individual experiences is thought concretized to the extent that if one follows Neville's teachings, you could say there's no Mitch here. Whatever you're experiencing, whatever your listeners are experiencing is a projection of their own emotionalized thoughts. And so you could say that there's no Mitch here and that this message is reaching you, the listeners, simply because you're intellectually prepared to hear it at this point. And not only was I touched very deeply by Neville's teaching, but I was touched by Neville as a persona. There was a solidity about him. There was a nobility about him. There was a seriousness about him. And I very often get into a teaching system based first upon my impression of the individual seeker or teacher who's offering it. And I was just overwhelmed with, with the impression of, of Neville. He spoke in this beautiful mid-Atlantic accent, which he picked up in his boyhood uh, on the island of Barbados, he was, came from a British Barbadian family. And there was just a serious and solidity about the man. He wrote about 10 books, delivered hundreds upon hundreds of lectures. And in every book and in every lecture, he restated the same basic theme that your imagination is God or your imagination is the creative element of life in totality. And it never sounded 
old. He had the capacity. I've only seen this maybe in Ralph Waldo Emerson and Jiddu Krishnamurti. He had the capacity to restate one core thesis over and over again, and yet every single time it sounded fresh. So I, I fell into the experience of Neville's work. I think as an example of what a profound influence Neville has had upon you, you actually have his image tattooed on your arm. Maybe you could show that to our viewers. Yes. Yeah, happy to. Um, this is Neville. Uh, there's a, a saying above it that says, live from the end. This was designed by an artist named Tim Boda, who's a very good friend of mine. Um, I'm very expressive, you know, visually. So <laughs> there's also Buddy Holly and, and, and Sasquatch somewhere here and some other things. Um, so uh, I just had a very deep love for the man and it was just a, a display of my affection. Well, it's very interesting, uh, the biography of a person like Neville. And uh, one of the uh, most intriguing things about him is uh, there's a, a connection between Neville Goddard and, of all people, Carlos Castaneda. And, and the connection has to do with the idea of having had a, a very unusual, profound experience with a teacher. Yes. Uh, Carlos's wife, uh, Margaret Runyon, they were married briefly, was a student of Neville's in the 1950s, early 1960s. And as Margaret retold the story in her memoirs, she met Carlos at a friend's house. And Carlos was then this stocky, very handsome Latin art student at UCLA. And she was very smitten with him. And she slipped him a copy of a Neville book called The Search, a very short book with her name and phone number written inside. And Carlos got in touch with her and the two became lovers and then husband and wife. And Margaret recalled that when she spoke about Neville's teachings, very often Carlos didn't display much more than polite interest. But when she spoke about Neville's backstory, Carlos just lit up. And the backstory was that Neville said that there was a, a teacher, a mysterious black man of Jewish descent, turbaned, named Abdullah, who was living in New York City in the early 1930s. And Abdullah, this somewhat mysterious teacher, this Ethiopian-born black Jewish rabbi, by some accounts, became Neville's teacher and taught him uh, number symbolism, Kabbalah, and the symbolical meaning of scripture. And Margaret recalled that when she spoke about the presence of this mysterious teacher in Neville's life, that's when Carlos started to lean forward. That's when Carlos started to listen. And of course, it was a few years later that Carlos produced uh, his own books, which which became enormous bestsellers. You could find them in just so many households across America where he described his own tutelage under a Native American shaman uh, named Don Juan. And Carlos obviously has long been a controversial figure because some people felt that the historicism behind his books was invented, it was made up, that Carlos just created his own backstory. And that, that may very well be true. It's very likely that Carlos certainly did so, at least in some cases. Carlos may have created Don Juan as a, a device. Don Juan may have been a composite. Whatever the case may be, I've always found Carlos's teachings just extraordinary and compelling. And different friends of mine, including Michael Murphy and Jacob Needleman, have said to me that they had the same impression, that when they met Carlos, he was a very likable person, a very affable person. They couldn't vouch for everything that he described as his backstory, but they felt that there was a substance and a presence to the man, and that very early on in his career, he had his his backstory uh, assembled in a way that was quite compelling. So Margaret surmised, or at least uh, I'm inferring from her account, that uh, Carlos may have taken some direct inspiration from from Neville and his backstory. Neville apparently had a very unusual connection with this teacher, uh, who is still, I gather, somewhat mysterious. I know you've worked hard to try to identify him, and you've come up with a very reasonable hypothesis that almost seems 
uh, to fit. But what struck me is, is the idea that when they first met, Abdullah said to Neville, you're six months late. I've been expecting you. Right. That was the famous story. Neville said he, there was a friend of his, a Catholic priest, who implored him to come see this man, Abdullah. And Neville said he was hesitant because he didn't have a great deal of respect for this particular priest. He said he was a guy who had inherited money and had squandered it on foolish investments. And he didn't think very highly of this man, but they were friendly. And so eventually he acceded to the request and he went into a little lecture room where Abdullah was about to give a talk. This was in 33. And, um, and Abdullah said to him, Neville, you're six months late. The brothers told me you were coming and you're six months late. And Neville, in his just wonderful, inimitable style, said, I am six months late. I had never seen this man before. And so began their relationship, as Neville recorded it. He described Abdullah living on the Upper West Side of Manhattan on West 72nd Street, gave the exact uh, building number. I've ventured to that building. I have been inside of that building. I have spoken to very tolerant neighbors in that building who invited me in and were willing to let me look around the place. Um, I have never been able to find any uh, empirical physical proof of Abdullah's existence. You know, you would think that a, a black Jewish man wearing a turban, bopping around New York City, in teaching metaphysics in the early 1930s might attract the attention of a newspaper reporter here or there. I've never found any such mention. But one of the things I surmise, and I'm glad you used the term almost, because almost is is the term you must always use when plumbing the mysteries of, of Neville or certain other 20th century figures. Um, it's possible, it's possible that uh, Abdullah was a uh, a figure who was involved in what was then known as the Ethiopianism movement. Ethiopianism was a precursor uh, to Rastafarianism. Ethiopianism was the uh, belief system held among a, a certain population of African Americans and Afro Caribbean um, folk that uh, Ethiopia was the home to a lost tribe of Israel, which is very possibly correct. And that Ethiopian, uh, this Ethiopian lost tribe had its own mysticism, its own teachings, uh, its own number symbolism, its own uh, Kabbalistic derived outlook. And Ethiopianism uh, included as a significant part of its outlook, this kind of mind as creator mysticism that you and I have been alluding to. This was an influence on Marcus Garvey, uh, the great early Pan-African activist. And I write about this in my books, Occult America and One Simple Idea. One of the things I hypothesize is that Abdullah may have been, may have been a figure named Arnold Josiah Ford, who was a very prominent figure within Marcus Garvey's organization, a turbaned figure. He fit the physical description of Ad Abdullah, very taciturn, very impressive looking man from what few photographs we have. And uh, people who have studied, historians who have studied the Ethiopianism movement in the early 20th century have identified Ford as somebody who seemed to have an authentic knowledge of Hebrew, an authentic knowledge of traditional Kabbalah. Ford identified himself as a rabbi, as Abdullah was sometimes identified as an Ethiopian rabbi. And Ford eventually migrated to Ethiopia because when the emperor Haile Selassie came to power in the early 1930s, he too was, in some regards, a advocate of this Ethiopianism, Pan-African philosophy. And uh, Haile Selassie offered land grants to African-Americans who were willing to migrate to Ethiopia. And so Ford was among a handful of folk who took up Haile Selassie, the Ethiopian emperor, on this offer of land grants, moved there, uh, died soon thereafter. And the reason why almost is important is not only because one just simply can't know. I mean, it's just me hypothesizing. I'm trying to do a reasonable job of it. But the timelines do not exactly match up. And that is um, the the leap that cannot be made. The timelines don't don't match up. I, 
I, I've been able to demonstrate through migration records that Ford and Neville were in New York City at the same time and would have been able to meet in 1933. But Ford did leave New York City in late 1933, early 1934. So they wouldn't have been able to study for the five years uh, that, that Neville said they studied together. So, you know, I, I can't say that I'm correct. I can only say it's just one hypothesis. And uh, there are certain mysteries that just have to be referenced with the word almost. Well, let's talk about Neville's discovery of, of the God within, that imagination, our very imagination is uh, is divine, is, is the creative power of the universe within us. Well, Neville's contention, and, and one of the things that makes him so exciting as a figure is that he's not describing any of this in metaphor. Neville is asserting with absolute plainness uh, that you, the individual, are the creator clothed in human flesh. You have fallen asleep to the nature of your own infinitude, and you will go through this life eventually coming into realization of the causative or creative faculties of your mind, and then you will be crucified, so to speak, on the cross of awareness when you finally will be able to come in to a full understanding of the divine nature of your own being, and you will rejoin with the source of creation, which you already are, but you are slumbering to that reality. And the exciting thing about Neville and the confounding thing about Neville and the challenging thing about Neville is that he equivocated on none of this. His contention was absolute, that everything that you are experiencing, every relationship, every occurrence within your life, is self-created. So there's a kind of extremist self-responsibility within Neville's teaching. And it can be very difficult because, as I often make note of, we experience many different laws and forces. Uh, if, if, if I stub my toe, I will experience pain. I will experience mass. I'm experiencing you, Jeff, right now. Your listeners are experiencing the two of us. And it feels as palpably real as time itself. At the same time, we are also aware, even if we're not capable of experiencing it hour by hour, minute by minute, that linear time is illusory. We, we know this is illusory, and we have known this for, for generations since Einstein. And we understand, and we can do calculations that prove and demonstrate that time literally slows down when moving at or near uh, light speed or in environments of extreme gravity. These are facts. So we know, we know that linear time in essence is a device that doesn't make it any less real to me or to you. We have an interview at a certain time. I have to show up here or I've, I've inconvenienced you, you know, and yet we also know that it's not real, that it's an organizing device that we use. It's not absolute in the final sense. So I would argue. I agree with Neville. Uh, there are many reasons for that, uh, some personal, some uh, macro or expository, that mind is ultimate reality. But we also have to contend with the, the material experiences of the world in which we live. Well, I gather that Neville uh, advocated the use of affirmations, the use of not just affirming verbally, intellectually, cognitively, but getting into the feeling of uh, what it is you wish to affirm for yourself and that by so doing, we can uh, manifest in our lives things that are, one might say, in accord with our highest aspirations. Yes, exactly. Uh, Neville had an expression, an assumption, though false, if persisted in, eventually hardens into fact. I think many people would agree with that. The extent to which one is willing to follow that logic is another question. But Neville's contention is that emotionalized thought and mental pictures are the manner in which the psyche creates. And his prescription, very simply, was to identify something that you wanted, 
go into a state of physical stillness, a meditative state, or even a drowsy state, the so-called hypnagogic state, that relaxed state you enter just before drifting to sleep at night, and run through your mind a scene that you are in of whatever circumstance it is in which you wish to find yourself. Don't view the scene as though you're watching it up on a screen somewhere. Experience yourself in the scene. So Neville would say, if I wish to climb a ladder, I don't see myself climbing a ladder. I climb. I feel the rungs of the ladder in my hands. I feel uh, the weight of my body on the rungs below me. And he said to run this scene through your mind as long as it feels natural and then allow yourself to drift off to sleep if you're able to drift off to sleep you know maybe it's at night neville would do it at three o'clock in the afternoon just after eating lunch he would often consume a bottle of wine with lunch he was not ascetic he was not ascetic and neville used to say uh, smoking i never got drinking that i got and so you know he he wanted the individual to feel a sense of uh, joy, uh, joie de vivre, participation in life, you know, in, in all of its pleasures, and and he rejoiced. He rejoiced in the success of his students as well. You know, once in a while, people come to me and say, "Hey, you know, why do you have that tattoo of Neville?" He said, "You know, don't make any graven images unto me," and so forth and so on. And my response is always that every time Neville would encounter one of the creative acts of one of his students, and many of his students were artists and writers, fashion designers. He reveled, he reveled in the success and the expression of his of his students and, and the affection that coexisted between the man and, and, and his students was just palpable. You can see it in photographs. So Neville felt that you run a scene through your mind so long as it feels natural and that scene will come to you. There might be a period of gestation, and later in his career, he talked more frequently about a gestation period, you know, just as it takes a human life of nine months to gestate, you know, a, a horse, 11 months to gestate, a chick, 30 days to gestate, a goat, three, four months to gestate. There would be a gestation period, but that this would come to you. And I've experimented with that uh, most of my adult life. Well, I think one of the most interesting relationships that you write about uh, is Neville's encounter with Israel Rigardi, who is widely known in occult circles. He was the secretary to Aleister Crowley. He's written about the Order of the Golden Dawn, a person steeped in the traditions of Western ceremonial magic who thought very highly of Neville. Yes. Uh, Rigardi... Uh, was in the United States in the uh, mid-1940s. And in 1946, Rigardi wrote a book called The Romance of Metaphysics. And that book was Rigardi's journalistic travelogue through some of the New Thought schools, the Christian Science schools, the Mind Creativity schools that were sweeping through America throughout the early uh, 20th century and remain enormously influential today. And so Rigardi, in his book, dedicated a long chapter to Neville, who he regarded as the most intriguing, most persuasive, most alluring exemplar of this school of thought. And he loved Neville's work, he said he regarded, he said of all the magical systems with which he was acquainted, he found Neville's one of the absolutely most effective and persuasive. And that's high praise coming from someone like Rigardi, given the background that, that he has that you've just described. But he had a criticism of Neville, and his criticism was this. Neville, he wrote, had a natural ability to enter into an emotionally suggestive state. Neville, by training, was an actor and a dancer. He came to New York City from Barbados at age 17 to study theater. And Neville did have some success. He was on the silent screen. He was on the Broadway stage. And Neville had a physical grace. He had the tools of a thespian. And Rigardi wrote that Neville may not have fully realized 
that it was more difficult for the everyday person to enter into a persuasive emotional state than it was for Neville, who was a trained actor, who was a natural dancer, who had a wonderful stage presence, who had a dramatic persona. And he said that he felt Neville's system perhaps required more training than Neville had brought to it. You know, and Neville's methods, part of the allure of Neville's methods is that they're so simple. They're so beautifully, beautifully simple. And Neville would challenge people, go home tonight, prove me wrong, try the exercise that I'm prescribing to you and see, see if it doesn't work. Prove me wrong. And Rigardi felt that Neville perhaps needed to go further in terms of training. There's a book I have out now, a book of Neville's work that I edit and introduce uh, called The Ideal Realized. And in that book, I make an effort to come to terms with Rigardi's criticism, which I take very seriously. And I go through Neville's work and I select all of the practical methods that he talked about across the entire arc of his career, from when his first book appeared in 1938 called At Your Command, to his final lectures delivered, in some cases, just months before his death in 1972. And I try to distill the fullest range of practical exercises, and I also add some of my own thoughts and insights, because the fact is, and, and I, I, have this, I have this critique of new thought in general, there are many times where the individual is in a state of profound grief, profound duress, suffering from addiction, suffering from some heart-rending event, and it's simply not always possible for us as individuals to enter into a, a feeling state uh, at will or at a moment when such an approach is most needed. And we sometimes make the mistake in working with new thought methods of conflating thought and emotions. The mind and emotions are two very different things. They run on different tracks. I could vow not to get angry and my neighbor does something that irritates me and whatever my wonderful vows have been, the emotions take over. A great teacher once said that pitting thought against emotion is like pitting steam power against nuclear power. The latter will win out every time. And so I think there are periods in an individual's life especially when suffering is present, where additional help is needed to enter into this, this feeling state. Or it may be necessary to ask the question and to experiment with methods about whether one can create without necessarily being in the feeling state. These are questions we have to answer. You know, where these philosophies just become stagnant. They become museum pieces. Uh, my love for Neville expresses itself as, as the love of one adult for another adult. I, I don't wish to elevate him or see him as a cosmic daddy. You know, I wish to engage with him seeker to seeker. And, and uh, there's no being of all the teachers I've studied who I wish was present today, who I could talk to and who I could relate to. And Neville, of course, would say, you can talk to me. You know, you and I are the same. We're both fragments of the creator. And so I'm attempting as best I'm capable of dealing with some of these issues, and I think Rigardi framed them very well. The point that Rigardi is making is is that for many people, a step by step uh, technique is is essential. Just to say, uh, you know, you are God if you go within, if you feel the feeling, and if you imagine uh, what you can conceive and believe, you can achieve. Uh, you hear so much of that in the motivational world today. It's it's a very American philosophy, but many people are critical of it because it seems as if the, the ones who are achieving are the motivational speakers who are selling audio tapes and, and the like, and not necessarily people who, who follow that practice. Uh, and another critique is it, it becomes all about money at some point. I'm haunted by what you're saying, and if the day ever comes when I'm not haunted by it, I, I hope I hang things up, because I do write books from a practical perspective. I do write books from a new thought perspective. I'm a historian, but I've also described myself as a believing historian, and lots of my books are written from a, a practical point of view. 
And shame on me, shame on me, if I'm the one who's benefiting from promulgating this philosophy and the end user is not benefiting. I hear from a lot of people who tell me that they've experienced wonderful things. I sometimes hear from people who are disappointed. I want to hear from people who are disappointed. I am not trying to hide from any of this. We're all in this together. I feel absolutely certain that our minds have causative properties. And there are many, many reasons for that that go beyond the testimony of seekers, although I take the testimony of seekers very seriously. I don't use the term manifest. I use the term select. And I think that ideas that we're seeing coming out of quantum theory, psychical research, neuroplasticity, uh, among other fields, relativity, string theory, some of the furthest reaches of placebo research, make it inescapably true that the mind generates a physical force. There's no question about that. The question of the conditions under which we can experience that is a more live question for me, which is why methodology is so important to me. There's no doubt in my mind that these methods enrich the life of the individual. But there's also no doubt in my mind that since the death of William James in 1910, cared very deeply about what he called the religion of healthy-mindedness, which is exactly what we're talking about. Since James's death, new thought, broadly speaking, has not matured, has not grown. It's done a better job of popularizing itself through books like Power of Positive Thinking or The Secret or what have you, than it has of refining itself. And I feel it falls to each generation to refine a practical philosophy of any kind, you know, whether it's Stoicism, whether it's Transcendentalism, whatever it may be, the religions themselves do not stand still. Catholicism doesn't stand still. Judaism doesn't stand still. Uh, evangelism, Protestantism doesn't stand still. Uh, protest is the root of the word Protestantism. Why should New Thought stand still? You know, we're living in a generation that is dealing with end-of-life issues, with a pandemic, with managing chronic pain, you can defer to that old-time religion and just say, well, it's all in the mind. And that may be true in some ultimate sense, but in terms of Tuesday at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, in terms of the hours of day-to-day life, we experience many laws and forces. And if New Thought doesn't have a theology of suffering, if New Thought doesn't have a theology that encompasses the experience of materialism, the experience of physical demise, to which there has never been an exception, not something that's quoted out of a decision that someone else made, but but that grapples here and now with the experience of physical decline, it, it is incomplete, and it cannot be a compelling total uh, moral philosophy. So my wish in my work is to is to help new thought and help myself uh reach a level of maturity that I think has been neglected over the past several generations. Since you mentioned demise, Neville died, as I recall, in 1972 at the age of 67. Now, I, I think in 1972, that was about the average lifespan. It's it's since expanded. But uh, if you look at his life, he was married twice. He, you refer to a daughter uh, that he had who doesn't want to have anything to do with people who are following his his teachings. Would would you say that uh, he was uh, able to exemplify the very teachings that uh, he offered to the world? I I do think he exemplified them, and that's one of the reasons why I have such affection for the man. You know, I, I I've done. I've done some forensics work on some stories that Neville would tell, and I found them to be logistically all true. Uh, Neville spoke of being drafted into the army during the Second World War, and he was somewhat older. He was in his late 30s at that time, but men were drafted into their 30s at the height of the war. Uh, he had a young daughter, Victoria, who you were just referencing. He was living uh, in Greenwich Village with his family. And he didn't want to serve in the army. He wanted no part of it. He wanted to be back home with his young family. And he told stories in several uh, lectures that he requested a discharge and, of course, was told no. And he said he used his methodology, went into this feeling state, and then 
lo and behold, out of the blue, was given an honorable discharge. And I thought, well, how can that be true? And I went back and I, I checked Army records. You know, I'm asking myself, here's an athletic man in the prime of health at the height of the war effort. And I find his Army records uh, match up exactly with what he claimed, uh, logistically at least. And um, his final pay stub in the, the U.S. military, I believe he was discharged in March of 1943. This is the very height of the Second World War, it's about four months after his, his being drafted. He was discharged to return to a, quote, vital civilian occupation. So I contacted an Army public affairs officer, and I explained what it was that I was after and that this man was a metaphysical lecturer. And I said, why, why would somebody be discharged as a metaphysical lecturer returning to a, a vital civilian occupation? And he said, well, you know, we don't know. Unfortunately, one year after Mr. Goddard's death, his records were destroyed in a fire at some Army record-keeping facility. So that was that. But there was a profile of Neville uh, that same year in September of 43 in the New Yorker magazine, not a magazine known for its occult passions. And to my surprise, they had this extended eight-page profile of Neville, probably one of the only times the New Yorker has ever run a profile of an explicitly occult or esoteric figure, living figure. And there he was, you know, back on the speaking circuit, bopping around New York City. Everything he described lined up. And, I've, and there are several such cases. More important than that, my sense of Neville is, I know he had a family and relationships and friendships, and he traveled. There was a fullness of life about the man. And so I would have to say, on all counts, he does seem to have fully lived out his philosophy. How about his death? Do you know anything about uh, the way in which he died? He died in uh, West Hollywood in 72. Uh, the official cause of death was reported as a heart attack. Uh, he, his body was returned to his home island of Barbados, uh, where he was buried in the, in the town of St. Michael in Barbados, where he's from. And not much else is known about his death. I can say the following. He was a fairly obscure figure when he died. Uh, he was not widely known at that time. He was not widely known for many, many years after his death. Um, towards the end of his life, Neville's message moved away from the mind as money magnet, you know, something to which you were alluding before. And not that I have any problem with that, but but his message moved away from that and more towards a more mystical vision where he told a story of experiencing a, a rebirth from within his own skull, uh, Golgotha being the place of the skull. And there are many precedence for this within myth and parable of a god being reborn from the, the skull of another being and that he experienced this this rebirth from within his own skull and experienced several other mystical episodes and unveilings and revelations that brought him into a fuller sense of himself as god the creator something that is true of all of us he would emphasize again and again this wasn't some megalomane maniacal vision this was, as he saw it, the human destiny, and that everyone would eventually experience this. And a speaking agent said to him, hey, listen, you got to back off from some of this esoteric stuff and start talking about law of attraction stuff again, or you're going to have no audience at all. And Neville said, then I'll speak it to the bare walls. And Neville did have a somewhat smaller audience towards the end of his life. He was not he retained his audience, but he was not a well-known figure. And as an older man with silver hair, you know, wearing a white suit, maybe he could seem a little bit of an anomaly in the age of Aquarius. You know, he wasn't a, a, a robed guru or, you know, somebody who was wearing love beads. You know, he looked like he belonged to the era from which he came, 1930s, 40s, 50s. And again, you know, he wasn't well-known. And when I began to get interested in Neville, uh, in the early 2000s, 2003 specifically, very few people knew who Neville was. You know, I was already steeped in new thought and I had never heard the name. And there were friends of mine who thought, wow, why are you getting interested in this super obscure guy? Who is this guy? And today, you know, put Neville's name into Google and you'll get hundreds of thousands of hits. 
And I, I, I mean, his popularity has just been bounding, bounding over the past, say, 15 years. He's been referenced by best-selling authors like Wayne Dyer, Rhonda Byrne. I remember um, several years ago when I was researching my book, One Simple Idea, I was at a Christian science library in Boston. And there was a very kind of patrician woman uh, who was the librarian. And, you know, we were talking and she said to me at a certain point in the conversation, who is this Neville? You know, and people were just starting to hear of him for the first time. And I, I think judging from Neville's popularity today, judging from how widespread his writings and his books and his lectures are online and in print and digitally, judging from the depth of feeling he inspires in people, I think he's probably going to become the most widely read uh, figure, the figure play, possessed of the greatest posterity from, from the New Thought tradition. And that would have been tough to imagine 15 years ago when he was still a, a fairly obscure figure. That has changed. Well, it seems as if there are sort of two different currents that come out of his teachings. One, one is this idea of discovering the God within. And I, I do recall reading that he was very reconciled to the idea that he might die young and it didn't seem to matter. He said, we all have to face death and it's going to come when it comes. Uh, but I also have read about him that, that he was a big inspiration to Reverend Ike and the gospel of prosperity. Yeah, the yeah, preacher, I used to listen to him uh, years ago who would say, you can't lose with the stuff I use. And, and it was all about, you know, wealth. Yes. Uh, Reverend Ike was, was listening to Neville's lectures, which existed on audio cassette and other forums in the analog era. I was reading Neville. Uh, in the early 70s, at a time when very few people knew who Neville was, and Reverend Ike was in there. I have to say, you know, Jeff, I must um, offer a word of defense of, of Reverend Ike, you know, because some people feel that he was exploitative. Some people feel there was something distasteful about all the talk of money all the time. You know, I remember watching Reverend Ike on a television show. It was the Phil Donahue show, which... <laughs> Some people are of a generation to remember. And I think Phil Donahue said, Tim, are you saying to me that God wants you to have a Cadillac? And Reverend Ike, of course, without missing a beat, said, no, God wants me to have a limousine. And, you know, that's how Reverend Ike would provoke people and push people. But I have to say the following. You know, there's, there's two questions that come to the table with Reverend Ike. A, does the method work? And, of course, journalists and many academics already have determined as a foregone conclusion, of course it doesn't work. It's nonsense. What serious person could imagine such a thing? And they think that the prosperity gospel is a bunch of sheep-like congregants lorded over by a megalomaniacal figure. They never or very rarely, if ever, ask themselves the question, in my experience, and I have a lot of contacts in the mainstream journalistic world, what are the experiences of the congregants? Why do they keep coming back? Are they spending ruinous sums of money on this? Are they receiving something from it? And if they weren't receiving something from it, why would they stick around? You know, I mean, get more interested in field work. Get more interested in the experience of the congregant. So the individual has to decide that for him or herself, not a religion reporter somewhere, not a professor of religion somewhere, but the individual congregant has to decide that for him or herself. That's one consideration. The other consideration is, is there something distasteful? Is there something off-putting? Well, I'll say the following. I've never said this out loud before, so I don't know how it's going to come out, and I don't know how I'll like myself saying it. But uh, a few weeks ago, there was a therapist on Twitter who made what I thought was a very brave comment. She said, listen, I'm all for therapy, and I think it benefits a lot of people, but I have to say that about 70% of the problems people approach me with have to do with just not having enough money. And I thought, well, right on. I appreciated the frankness of that admission. And I have to say, Jeff, you know, within our spiritual culture, both alternative and mainstream, there is an attitude uh, prevalent that we must not get too carried away with the material uh, we must not get caught in this trap of thinking 
that the end of all spiritual experiences and Mercedes, which people always attribute to the secret, there's no such story in the movie, there's no Mercedes in the movie, but that's what everybody thinks is in the secret, so granted. I, I think one of the things that I personally love about New Thought, and one of the things I feel called to defend about a figure like a Reverend Ike, or a Neville for that matter, is that they were always willing to meet people where they lived. And there was never any niceties that kept them from acknowledging that these are the workaday issues that people deal with. And boy, I tell you, I do not make what I consider to be these somewhat artificial divisions between inner and outer, higher and lower, material, non-material, essence, personality. It's all one life. It's all one thing. You know, where would one begin at the other end? You know, show me ego. How would I get my arms around that? You know, contrast egotism to altruism. Let's say those are polar opposites. Well, there's a very big gray area in there, and human motives are very complex. I don't like to necessarily resort to these demarcations. I think they're artificial. And I care very, very deeply about the individual who needs money and knows what he or she needs, you know, and, and I think when the individual seeker speaks about happiness, love, money, those things aren't to be taken away from someone. Those things aren't to be reconditioned. Those things aren't to be used as a device to say, well, you know, what do you really mean? Or who's asking? Or which I within you is calling for that? I believe that the mature individual, the sensitive individual, is capable of knowing what he or she wants. I believe a sensitive 12-year-old is capable of knowing what he or she wants. I don't, I don't want to dictate to somebody from my position what I think they should be wanting. I may want the same thing that they do. So I know Reverend Ike, and, and, you know, I mean, he's the most dramatic of all these figures. <laughs> I know he could provoke, and I know that was part of his uh, approach. But I, I admire the willingness to meet people where they live. Well, as I recall, Neville, uh, in his description of that process of entering into the feeling of uh, that which you aspire for, made a point of, of saying everybody is going to do it differently. They have to do it from uh, wherever they are at at their particular station in life. Yes. And Neville said towards the end of his life, you will experience all the things of the world of Caesar in this incarnation or another. He believed that there were recurrent incarnations until we reached a point of uh, self-awareness. You'll, you'll be so suffused with the things of Caesar, the things of the world, that you'll eventually go in search of something better. You'll eventually go in search of something higher. And I accept that. I accept that. Although I would counsel myself and my neighbor, and my co-seeker, speak from experience. Speak from experience. I accept that that's true, but I have not verified that that's true yet. I don't want people who don't have all the things of Caesar to dismiss the things of Caesar because one doesn't know what that experience is like. Have that experience first. There was a great Sufi teacher, Hazrat Anaya Khan, who was once asked by a student in the early 20th century, is it necessary to renounce wealth in order to attain spiritual awareness? And Hazrat said, well, do you have wealth? You know, how can you renounce what you don't already have? And so, you know, I, I, I appreciated that answer to the extent that, you know, let's not imagine I know what I would do in situation X, Y, or Z until I'm actually in that situation. Uh, I, to talk of renouncing wealth or to talk of aspiring to something that goes beyond the world of Caesar is just theater, you know, unless one is actually in the position to do that. Well, I gather that part of his philosophy, uh, you've described it as a, a serial universe. Uh, it has to do with rebirth and it even has to do with the idea of, of the universe itself being born and reborn over and over again, as opposed to the idea of multiple universes everywhere simultaneously. In the late 1940s, before all this quantum theory was popularized, Neville said to an audience in Los Angeles, uh, someday, a scientist will explain to us why 
a serial universe exists. But what we are concerned with right now is how to use that serial universe. Now, he uttered those words, I think it was 1948, which was quite remarkable because at that time, this stuff was not popularized. I'm not even sure the many worlds theory as we reference it today had been ventured yet. I think it was uh, the physicist Hugh Everett who ventured it several years later. So Neville had just a tremendous uh, comportment in his language and concepts and ideas with quantum theory. And I remember when I was writing my book, One Simple Idea, which is a history of the positive mind movement, I worked really hard as a layperson to understand the Schrodinger's cat thought experiment and to understand some of that material. I'm not a physicist and I am not a student of physics, but I am a very dedicated layperson. And I worked very, very hard to really, really get a correct understanding of that. And I'll tell you, it comports with Neville's outlook. It comports with Neville's outlook. Uh, again, we are going to experience materialism. We are going to experience physical demise. And we have to, we have to have a outlook on life that allows us to navigate that world too. But uh, the marriage between Neville and quantum theory, I think, is one of the things that's going to make Neville into a figure of the greatest prominence of, of 20th century New Thought figures. Well, Mitch Horowitz, uh, what a pleasure to share with you your passion for this wonderful New Thought teacher. I'm just delighted that we've had this time together. I'm also happy to let our viewers know that we plan even more discussions on the New Thinking Aloud channel. Mitch, thank you so much for being with me. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Jeff. And for those of you watching or listening, thank you for being with us.